Hey everyone, welcome to the Bio Breakthroughs podcast by Slice of Healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. Uh, joining me today is the CEO at Cyclocell, Spiro Rambatis. Spiro, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Excited to have you here. Let's dive right into it. Tell me a little bit about your background. Well, I've been in the drug development uh, industry for 37 years, most of it in cancer. I work for two large pharmas, or we did my training, and three biotechs. Cyclocell is my third biotech employer, fifth overall. And we're very excited to reach a critical stage in our development of two of our novel drugs uh, indicated for various type of solid cancers. And your, your background is pretty, I mean, you, you spent some time at, at, at Bristol-Myers Squibb, right? Um, how, how did your background to this point prepare you for, you know, uh, leading Cyclocell? Um, you know, what are some of the great takeaways across your career that you were able to be like, this is what is really going to excite me in building this company? Well, I actually entered the industry because I worked after my grad studies in Chicago and Northwestern. I actually worked for a small hospital and I was particularly interested in the hospice unit of a hospital. And I realized that all we could do back then in the mid 80s is to offer palliative care, care of pain and suffering for these patients, could really substantially change the direction of the disease. So I decided to cross over from the provider side to the drug development side and see if I could put a pebble on my beach and offer solutions for patients. So that was my life's journey. And uh, Big Pharma was a great school to learn how drug development is done properly with lots of resources. But after I joined the first biotech, Senegore, which was eventually acquired by Johnson & Johnson, I realized that small companies can move faster, especially in areas that are seen as extremely high risk, where big pharma executives by Darwinian selection, I guess, uh, may be less willing to commit resources. Now that, of course, requires within, that's probably the biggest lesson I learned in this 37 years, acceptance of failure. Only 10% of drugs will reach the market when they enter clinical development, uh, less than one in 100 uh, from the laboratory stage. That means that we know that 90% of us will fail. But if 10% of us succeed, society gets every year about 50 drugs that the FDA approves. About half of those are for cancer, uh, indicating the size of the challenge we face in the war against cancer. So it is really a calling more than a profession. You have to be willing to sacrifice everything, career, sometimes even a part of your family life, to commit to the cause. And then if we're successful, success isn't necessarily going to happen to us, but may happen to others that are fighting alongside the same war. The other major learning is that we learn from failure. In other words, if we learn what caused the drug not to succeed from a company before us, then we have an increased chance of succeeding in the next generation. This means that we have to have an open sharing attitude of our industry, although we're all keen for patent protection, exclusivity. Obviously, we have to reward our stockholders for the support. But on the other hand, we have to understand that society is fighting multiple wars at the same time. And therefore, sharing the information why a drug has failed makes the next one less likely to fail for the same reason, more likely to succeed overall. Well said. Uh, I already know that's going to be a great quote for you uh, when, we're, when we're going through this. Um, thank you so much for sharing those thoughts. Now, when, when we look at um, uh, Cyclocell, I see that you're developing, you know, you're, you're focused on developing innovative cancer therapies through cell inhibition. Can you talk us through which part of the cell cycle you're specifically targeting? Right. Well, effectively all of it, uh, because uh, our founding scientist, Professor Sir David Lane, was one of the founding scientists of this entire field of cancer biology. 
uh, three years after the company was founded, actually the Nobel Prize was awarded for some of the enzymatic targets, the enzymes that we're targeting with our drugs uh, to achieve cell cycle control. So all this is based on exactly the citation of the Nobel Prize, not just the discovery of the CDK enzymes and their sister proteins called cyclins, but also a process of the body clock, which we call cell cycle checkpoint control, which means that at two different stages in the cell cycle clock that all cells go through with the normal or cancerous, the cell is checked for damage to its DNA. If the damage is found to be irreparable, then the cell is instructed by the immune system to commit suicide, a process called apoptosis, which means that the cell actually becomes unavailable to perform any function. Therefore, if it is cancerous, it won't divide and make daughter cells that will cause trouble. However, a cancer cell is smart and they find ways to evade this checkpoint control process, which in cancer patients is either malfunctioning or is mutated. The strategy, therefore, of the company that David Lane pioneered and I've been dutifully following as a single worker, as a soldier in this war, is the idea that we can use small molecule drugs taken by mouth to block these enzymes and by doing so, preventing the cancer cell from acquiring resistance, which is the reason that many cancer therapies fail. People respond initially, but after a few months, hopefully years, but oftentimes months, unfortunately, they have relapsed. The cancer comes back. So the goal here is to suppress this mechanism that cancer cells hijack so that they can continue to divide, gain an advantage, and then instruct them to commit suicide. Over time, if our drug is tolerated and we can give it on a regular basis, most likely daily, then we will see cancer cells dying faster than normal cells. Eventually, the immune system overwhelms the cancer and the cancer goes to remission. So this is really a patient process. One cannot see spectacular early results, but keeping the patient on study is critical. And this has profound implications of how we design the drugs, how we develop them, and what criteria we look into the clinic. And I'm very pleased to tell you that both of our clinical stage compounds have passed the first few tests with flying colors as they're very safe and have shown early evidence of anti-cancer activity as single drugs, which is always the holy grail in early development. And, and I'd love to, to dive in, you know, to talk us through about your, talk us uh, a little bit about your leading candidates at this time. Where are they in the clinical trials? Um, right. So the first drug is called Fadrocyclib. Let's call it Fadra for short. It's a CDK2 and CDK9 inhibitor. It inhibits two enzymes in the early cell cycle. And that's critical because we know that CDK2 uh, was found to be a mechanism by which breast cancer, for example, suppresses the activity of approved drugs, some of which actually are CDK inhibitors like ours, but they hit different enzymes called CDKs 4 and 6. In fact, the leading drug in this class, which was FDA approved in 2015, is called Ibrans from Pfizer, and it's indicated by the FDA approval for a type of hormone receptor positive estrogen or progesterone uh, breast cancer. So what Pfizer did among the approval studies, they did a third trial in which they showed that when patients fail their $4 billion blockbuster, then CDK2 and its sister protein, the cyclin E, are elevated, which means if we can find a way to suppress these targets, we should make those cancers again sensitive to therapy because they have lost by becoming resistant. The same concept applies to our second drug, which is called Plogosertib. Let's call it Plogo for short, which works on the very last stage of the cell cycle, which is called M phase, where M stands for mitosis, which is a fancy science word for division. Mitosis is the process where cells pull apart. We have a, a central fuselage called the spindle, uh, the process is called cytokinesis, and then essentially two daughter cells get formed into whom the material from the nucleus 
and the surrounding component of the cell is divided. And when they finish pulling apart and forming their own cellular architecture, then they go on and divide and make daughter cells. In cancer, this process is uncontrolled. PLK, the target of PLOGO, is an essential regulator. But we found, and another academic scientist, Professor David Glover, who's now at Caltech in his 80s, he's a professor emeritus at Caltech in California, is that PLK1 loss or inhibition of PLK1 is lethal for cancer cells. They cannot sustain the loss of this critical regulatory enzyme. Normal cells, though, can survive when we deny them PLK and they go back into division after the drug wears off. Takeaway is that both of those drugs benefit by having built into their architecture short time of residence in the blood. Why is that important? We know that in precision medicine, giving more of the drug than there is a biological reason to do is associated with toxicity. So if a drug sticks around for three or four hours, it will be clear by the situation in half a day. We can give it maybe twice a day or at least once a day. If ever it takes five days to clear, we cannot reintroduce the therapy every day. Meanwhile, the cancer cells have a chance to gain advantage. So the takeaway for both of these drugs is that optimal design is based on what we understand the mechanism to be, and then early in the clinic to see in patients that what we designed actually works, it is as we thought it should work, and therefore continue to invest resources and effort as well as the altruism of patients who volunteer for trials to hopefully get it to a proof of concept and then to regulatory approval. Now let's talk about uniqueness, right? Big thing in, in your space when you start diving into the competitive landscape. What makes, you gave us you know, a, a great explanation of, um, of your leading candidates and where they're at. Let's dive into what makes your CDK in, um, inhibitor strategy unique compared to some of these other biopharmaceutical companies out there on the market today. In a nutshell, we hit two of these critical enzymes, both two and nine. They both have important roles to play, and we also found in early clinical trials and patients being tested at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, in our very first in the human study of FADRA, that these patients had simultaneously proteins that are affected by CDK2 and also by CDK9, which begs the obvious question, why is the rest of the industry not following us? We have six competitors, some of whom are pursuing CDK2 only, and some are pursuing CDK9 only, but nobody is emulating Sackler's strategy of hitting both. I remind you that Pfizer's $4 billion CDK drug, Ibrans, hit CDK4 and 6, not CDK4 or CDK6. There's a reason for that. So I don't know that uh, we're necessarily correct, but it is, seems to me from the data we collected and also independent publications by authors not affiliated with the company, that CDK2 and 9 together is a superior strategy to hitting just 2 and just 9 for many reasons. So we think this is an important distinguishing factor, but perhaps the most recent data reported last October in a major cancer meeting showed that FADRA is the only drug in what we call next-gen CDK inhibitor family to have single-agent activity in both liquid tumors, like lymphoma, as well as solid tumors, like women's cancers, endometrial, ovarian, uterine, and so on. That is extremely rare. Most drugs work in either one or the other type of cancer. If it works in both, it underlines how critical this biological mechanism, which is why there is a Nobel Prize behind it. The point is up to now, we're not able to harness it. And it's possible that FADRA may be, if not the first, certainly one of the very first compounds to reach proof of concept and ultimately the market that harnesses the mechanism. But key feature again is that CDK2N9 in our mind is the optimal strategy. And, and tell me a little bit about um... Your, your P, uh, PLK1 program, where, where do things stand with that? 
Yeah, PLK is a few months behind FADRAN development, also is in phase one, two studies. What we mean by that is that both of the drugs, both of the trials, enable us to go straight to an FDA dialogue at the end of phase two. We don't need to stop between phase one and phase two, get permission and start again. It's all one protocol. The FDA accepted the protocol as one entity, and we ensured that all the patients, even the very first patients, are tested and data is collected to the standard required for FDA submission. So the reason for this is that Plogo, like Fadra, has some very similar properties and some dissimilar. What's similar, as I mentioned, is that it's orally available, taken by a mouth. It's a small molecule. It has a short half-life, which we think is an advantage, and it's clearly active on mechanism. What is dissimilar is that, unexpectedly, Plogo has activity at very low dose levels. Fadra did not. We had to go with Fadra up to dose level 6 to find consistent activity not only in patients showing tumor shrinkage, but also on the relevant proteins we wanted to hit. Remember, the history of this class was hitting these proteins that cancer has hijacked. With Plogo, quite unexpectedly, at the very first dose level, we're now in dose level four. And since then, we've been seeing patients having benefit, tumors shrinking, lung cancer, ovarian, cancer of the bile, and recently one more type that we'll announce in our um, quarterly report, which is coming up later this week, are showing sensitivity to this drug as a single agent without any evidence of toxicity. We have no dose-limiting toxicity so far in this study. So the obvious issue with Plogo is why is that the case? Turns out, and this is a bit of uh, sleuth work on behalf of our clinical team, there is a paper some years ago showing that PLK inhibition at low concentrations of the drug, so long as it's done every day, continuously, can be more lethal to cancer cells than giving these drugs in a classical pharmacology paradigm, which is to keep giving them until we see more activity. We hit the wall with toxicity, we go one dose level below that, and that's the dose we use in the clinic. That doesn't appear to be the right model for this drug. There are many reasons for that, but I would only tell you one word. It's not plastics. <laughs> it's epigenetics. Epigenetics is the new field of cancer biology where we can reprogram what cancer cells do. We can fundamentally change their DNA code to teach them to do something else other than divide out of control and cause ultimately the patient's death from cancer. So epigenetic mechanisms can be used to our advantage once we understand the full extent of their implications, and Plogo appears to be an epigenetic drug, which may be why it works in low dose. Very fascinating uh, program, and one that we look forward to report more data later this year, which hopefully will allow it to catch up to far in stage of development. Well, that was going to be my next question for you, too, is what you can share here today, right, as we as we wrap up uh, the episode, talk us through, you know, some of the near-term milestones that are exciting you, that you can share, what's next for the company, again, what you can share. I know there's some things that you'd love to share, but you can't. Uh, just tell us what you can today. Of course. We're a few heartbeats away from starting the second part of the phase one slash two study with FADRA. This is phase two. We call it POC, or proof of concept. Now, this part of the study is where the tire meets the road. We have, in phase one, tested the drug across six dose levels. We were fortunate to find activity because the patients get um, selected randomly and they agree to participate in the study after the physician offers them our protocol. Uh, but we don't have a systematic way of predicting what tumors the drug is going to work. In phase two, proof of concept POC study, we're going to know exactly the tumor types. So we have a group called a cohort, which have endometrial and ovarian women's cancers, a group that has lymphoma, both of which have seen activity, but also colon cancer, every subtype of breast cancer, also cancer of the liver and cancer of the bile. So the intention is to test in different types of cancer defined by tumor type what the drug can do 
to find one or more of these indications, each of which is discrete from the others. There are seven shots on goal, independent of one another, which can lead us to an end of phase two meeting with the FDA, which, like I said, is a discussion between the sponsor, Cyclocell, and the regulator, FDA, whether they are willing to accept the registration submission based on single agent data. If the benefit, the response rate is robust and it's durable and toxicity acceptable to the agency, they might be able to do that. Or they might not. They might say, well, we think you should do it under my study. Then, of course, that takes more time and treasure to get there. But the prospect of single agent activity is gold dust in our industry. A huge proportion of our drugs, what about three quarters, actually only work in combination by the time they get approved. So we take an existing drug, you marry it with another drug, and you have a cocktail or whatever. It can be oral, it can be IV, intravenous. But in this case, both father and plug have single agent activity. So the high stakes game that we're wagering is if we have enough single agent activity, even one tumor type, that could be enough to get the drug to market several years before a proper randomized program using combinations would allow us to do so. So that's where Fadra is going to go in the next 12 months or so. These uh, individual cohorts will report because they will enroll at different times um, in company press releases. So this could be a very rich 12 months for that program. Plogo. Plogo is, as I mentioned, about six months behind. We're in the middle of phase one dose escalation. But if the theory I described earlier proves to be true and is not an artifact, which often happens in biology, then we could run and we'll call it an enriched study. So the phase two component of that trial is patients who have the biology which PLOGO affects. They are selected by this biology using a, a diagnostic test, and then they're entered to a study which is only enrolling those kind of patients. The homogeneity of that trial, of course, has a much higher chance of success than taking random patients who don't have necessarily selection. So both programs have very exciting 2023 ahead of them, but I would certainly say that uh, FADRA has the best data support, the best safety so far, and the most patient population, the highest sample size. Plogo has less data, but it has a very fascinating mechanism, which we are thrilled to start to peel the onion layers and figure out how we can best help patients by understanding how to use well, it. Well, I'm excited to, to stay in touch with you, Spiro, to hopefully have you come back on in the near future and you can give us updates on where everything stands. But uh, super excited for you and your team and, and what you're continuing to build. And I can tell you have that you know, that drive, that passion, like you said, you need to have when you're building out these, these, uh, these drugs. Um, really appreciate having you here today. I'm very glad to join you and share on behalf of my colleagues, our passion for helping patients. Thanks very much, Jared. Mm-hmm.